Welcome to another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. Today, Jonathan Davis, an MA publishing student, will introduce Bridget Shine and Giles Lewis. It gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce Bridget Shine, uh, sitting here down before me. Um, she is the Executive Director of the Independent Publishers Guild. She joined the uh, group uh, IPG in October 2004, uh, and before that, has worked across the industry covering editorial, marketing rights, and production positions in <laughs> independent publishing companies, a literary agent, and a multinational. Um, just to give you a brief highlight of what the IPG stands for, they actively represent the interest of independent publishers in the United Kingdom and are represented on many committees and forums which steer and form the strategy for the UK, UK book trade. They have more than 480 members and are steadily growing um, with the recent inclusion of larger independent companies such as Bloomsbury Publishing and children's publisher Walker Books. Um, the combined membership have an annual turnover of about half a billion pounds. And um, we're also glad to welcome one of their members, and it's Giles Lewis. He's the managing director of How To Books. How To Books is a publisher of non-fiction titles specializing in self-improvement, traveling and working abroad, and uh, cooking on a budget. Uh, is just one of their successful titles they had just ahead of the Christmas season. Um, just to tell you a little bit about Giles, he started at Elsevier Publishing before joining OUP and went abroad for eight years, only to return to one, run one of the presses', presses three divisions, and in 1996 he raised a sum of money, bought two publishing companies, one of which he is now sold on and managed, in, uh, sold on, and the other one he manages. He's going to provide tonight's case study on how just the independent publisher is bucking the trend. So I will turn it over to Bridget now to uh, give you the full works. Hello, everyone. Uh, as Jonathan has said, I'm the executive director of the Independent Publishers Guild, IPG. Uh, I'd like to thank Jonathan very much for inviting me here uh, to come and meet you this afternoon and to give you, I hope, uh, an insight into independent publishing and what the IPG does. Um, can you hear me at the back, all right? Good. Okay, so the first thing I thought we ought to clarify is what actually is an independent publisher? Um, has anybody got any suggestions, any, any definitions? Well, we've always been extremely, IPG, extremely uh, flexible in terms of our definition of what actually is an independent publisher. And we don't have it in our sort of uh, M&As. You know, we, we've been very loose. But we now have these book awards called the Independent Publishing Awards, and we thought we ought to really have a very tight definition. So our definition of an independent publisher is um, a company that is owned by a single entrepreneur or a group of entrepreneurs. Um, it's not owned by a larger company and it's not publicly quoted. Um, the thing to mention about IPG, as Jonathan's already said, we have more than 480 companies that belong to us, to this trade association. Um, but they come from a variety of backgrounds, from education, educational publishers, children's publishers, trade publishers, uh, and academic and professional. So you can just imagine, you know, when we try to have one voice, we've got lots of people coming in from different, uh, different, different sort of uh, um, genres, and also different sizes as well. So that's what a, an independent publisher is, and I thought the next thing we ought to really do is to set the scene, because I, I was invited here today to talk about uh, what independent publishers are doing to weather the recession and what IPG is doing to support them. So I thought, first of all, let's, let's see what, what's actually happening in the market at the moment. Can I just have a show of hands? Um, who reads book to book every day? And book brunch? Okay, great. Uh, read the bookseller? 
Yeah, most of you. I thought you would. Yeah. So you, you know, you know, sort of know. So I'm, I'm sort of telling you what you already know. But um, it's good. I mean, for those of you who do not, who, who aren't signed up to book to book, um, it's free daily email and, and book brunch is a, a recent one. Um, I'd really encourage you to get on because then you just get all the news uh, that comes in and, it, and it's free. Um, so over the, uh, on the high streets in the last few years, there's been a huge uh, consolidation, really um, enormous consolidation. So some of you may remember Ottakers, uh, the high, high street uh, chain that was bought by Waterstones, for example. Um, the result of this consolidation is that there are fewer and fewer buyers for publishers to deal with. So, um, and, and the other thing is that they have narrowed the range of titles uh, that they that they're willing to sell. So if you go down, you know, to Oxford High Street and you go into Waterstones, for example, we all know they're all the celebrities. They're really focused on these sort of mass market celebrity books, um, which a lot of independent uh, publishers don't publish. And the thing I just need to say, uh, Giles and I were having this uh, discussion just before, uh, before we started here independent publisher does not necessarily mean small. A lot of people just put the two in together and say independent, that means a small publisher. But it is true that the majority of independent publishers are smaller companies. Um, but some of the larger ones are a little bit sensitive to being associated with small, so that's quite important. But in terms of the <laughs> high street, um, Oscars, for example, uh, were particularly good at sourcing local books. And that's all gone. Um, the publishers now have to deal with high street, uh, with, with sort of um, the main buyer, just one buyer, not, not somebody, they won't go into their local store and have a, a relationship and a rapport with a buyer there. Um, Giles, would you agree with me on that? <coughs> yes, uh, interesting point actually, when, when you probably realise that Waterstones took over articles, I think it was a year and a half ago now. It's 2006. Yeah. 2006, okay. And um, before that, we to books, we did good business with Oticus. Quite a lot of our sales went there, and in a way, pound for pound, they were our best range of booksellers for, for the list we had. And Watson's bought them, and in the year after they bought them, the substantial, significant slug of turnover that represented Oticus, we'd expected to be reproduced but under a different roof called Watson's, didn't actually happen. So all that turnover in Oticus that we used to enjoy, virtually, virtually all of it, disappeared when consolidation took place between Waterstones and Articles. And that, for us, was a very hurtful example of just how consolidation sometimes doesn't mean that the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. It means quite the opposite. Uh, absolutely. So no, you thank know. you, Giles. That's a, that's a perfect example. IPG, for example, you know, I get a lot of emails uh, at that time uh, from our members saying, you know, we're really concerned about Articles being sold to Waterstones because we're uh, we just won't get our books into to Waterstones, um, and so we actually, um, you know, took on board everyone's um, comments, and we made a representation to the Competition Commission. Unfortunately, we lost, and so um, you know, Waterstones did go ahead and buy it. But that's the sort of thing that IPG does, and sort of uh, you know takes on board our members' comments and, and reflects that and takes action. So that's so so that's on the high street. You you see the sort of consolidation. Then, of course, there's the rise of the internet retailers. Amazon, of course, is the most, the largest and the most significant uh, in terms of uh, publishers uh, selling to them. There's the book depository, if anyone's heard of them, and play.com, who are growing in terms of, um, uh, terms of uh, selling books. 
So the internet retailers are extremely powerful, um, and they are interested in um, the long tail. I, I mean, this actually has been beneficial to independent publishers to, and to smaller companies because they don't really care whether you're a big boy or you're small, and the consumer has no idea if the, this book is published by one of the big five publishing houses or a one-man band. They're really interested in the content. They know where they can go and get it. That's all they're interested in. So internet retailing, for the most part, has been very good for independent publishing. But I will come back to that at the end. So, um, but and as I say, the importance of the internet retailer should not be um, understated. And, you know, the chains are, are hurting and, and they're sort of playing catch-up now. And, you know, obviously, Warstone.com and Borders have launched their own website. So, um, but, but there's definitely, um, you know, the, the internet is, is, is the key place where publishers sell now, internet retailers. Um, you, you may be aware that um, Borders UK, sorry, Borders USA sold Borders UK, um, and this was about 18 months ago, that's right. Um, and they've really been struggling anyway. Um, credit insurance has been pulled from Borders, from Blackwells, and for, for a while from Bertrams, and I'll come back to that. So what that meant was um, that this, uh, the, the insurance company felt that these, these companies were not really credit worthy, so they weren't going to let publishers have insurance to trade with them. So the bottom line is, it means you're on your own. If, if, these, if these retailers go belly up, and they owe you a lot of money, Unfortunately, you've got no insurance to cover you. So it really has been really tough out there. Um, I, I don't need to sort of say that. Um, and independent retailers, again, Giles and I were having a discussion uh, just before we started here about um, a lot of independent retailers. Again, you would have read in the bookseller, a lot of them have shut up shop and, you know, that they can't, they can't compete with um, discounting and pricing um, from the, the bigger chains, from the chains and, and the internet. Also, the exchange rate has been pretty crummy for, in, uh, for, for, for publishers at the moment. Um, the pound's at its lowest, so that has an impact on international sales. So as I say, you know, it has been really, really tough out there. Um, but the good news is, as I'm sure again you've all read, that Bertram's, the wholesaler, has recently been sold. Um, this really is good news for the industry because if they hadn't been able to find a buyer, and again, gone belly up, expression of the, of the afternoon, um, you know, there'd only been one wholesaler, uh, gardeners, and no industry can afford just to have, again, one, one retailer, one wholesaler. So, you know, that, this is really, really good news, isn't it, Giles, about Bertrams? So we all, we all um, extremely happy about that. You may also have read, again, in the bookseller um, and uh, elsewhere about pay freezes uh, for the big publishing houses uh, and a sort of a stop on taking on new staff. Um, so again, all these things just show that it really um, you know, has been pretty tough. Um, just as an aside, British printers have been taking a, taking a real pasting. Um, just today I was talking to one of a, a small family-run printer Mm -hmm. uh, who was an IPG member, and they, they went into administration last week, and um, you know they, they're shutting up tomorrow. It's desperately sad, very very sad. Um, but anyway, um, UK printers have have really suffered as a result of uh, overseas um, printers being more competitive and exchange rates, etc. So against all this backdrop, 
we, we conducted a poll uh, of our members uh, last month and, and just asked them, is trading worse than you anticipated? Um, has it been worse than you anticipated this year? Um, and, I'm, and I'm stunned to tell you that 73% said, actually, no, it hasn't been worse than anticipated. So obviously, maybe they anticipated that it was going to be dire. Um, or, or just it's not been as bad as you know it's all doom and gloom and you know, I've been sort of painting the scene. So if I can just tell you what a few of them said, the sorts of things they sell. Um, one of them said, um, you know, we sell mainly into gift shops and museum stores, and have had one of the best starts to the year. By working with Google, we've been able to to, to gain many new outlets and they're now selling into Australia and, and offering all sorts of things. Um, another one said, we had an exceptionally good January and February is good so far as well. So, you know, by all accounts, independent independent publishers are sort of bucking the trends. Um, so why would they be bucking the trend? Well, here are some sort of qualities then that, um, that really, I think, sum up independence. And again, Giles, I think, it's fantastic that he's here because he provides the, you know, how-to books as the case study of, of, and sort of confirming what I'm what I'm saying really. Um, so some sort of qualities and factors that are really associated with independent publishers. Um, they're more entrepreneurial. They really are more, much more entrepreneurial. They're constantly looking at how to um, revive their businesses, looking at new ideas, coming up with new things. They're much more entrepreneurial, more digital. They, they. Um, I think this is particularly uh, um, uh, true in the case of how to books, which Charles is going to talk about in a minute. But again, they're just more savvy in what's going on. Um, they're used to selling to specialist audiences uh, through the internet, and um, they spend less on promotions. Um, they spend less because they have less to spend. Um, I mean, sometimes it's extraordinary what some of the high. Uh, the, the chains and that they say fine yeah we'll put your book in a promo in a promotion but you it's going to cost you x thousands of pounds well independent publishers just simply don't have that kind of um, that that kind of money to to play around with and obviously if you spend less on promotions you're very likely to get less returns coming back because you know promotions you really don't know how they're going to sell you're just hoping for the best you're hoping with a big promotion um, but returns can be a, a, a real killer um, for, for, for publishers. Would you say that's true, Giles? Yes, especially in recession, when uh, bookshops concentrate on getting rid of their stock, and the waves of return are worse even than in a normal year. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that independent publishers probably are better at than big publishers is that they're very good at looking hard at those returns and making sure that they're absolutely within terms, by which I mean terms that they are allowed, that bookshops are allowed to make those those returns in the first place. Mm -hmm. And um, we spend quite a lot of time combing through our returns to make sure that every single one that doesn't come within terms is refused and rejected. Mm -hmm. I think big publishers probably don't bother to do that. Mm -hmm. I think they just say, it's, some, it's down in some department somewhere and it's lost. And that department takes the easy way out and accepts it all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So just by their very definition of being a smaller company then um, you know they they, they seem they, un they understand the business and they can't afford to have the high returns as Giles just saying um, independent publishers tend to <coughs> specialize I'd say would be particularly good at special sales so non-traditional outlets I mean I just gave you a quote of somebody saying well they sell to galleries and they send to gift shops and non-traditional outlets you're always looking um, 
uh, you know, at places that aren't aren't on the high street. And again, as I would say from my members, you know, we have academic and professional publishers, we have education publishers. They, they don't really go, they don't really have a lot to do with the high street, so they are selling to their customers, they know their customers. Um, another, another reason why independent publishers are slightly ahead of the curve, really, um, is closeness to their authors, and I think, I don't think anybody could um, disagree with that. Uh, just to give you a, a particular example, I, um, before I joined Hare in, in, a, in a previous life, I was the publishing director of a company called Crown House Publishing, and we published um, psychology books, and um, they were actually popular psychology, and of course I told everybody they were quality psychology books, and um, my husband um, phoned me uh, one day and said, I've just been to a seminar, and we published books on NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and he said, um, it's to do with education, NLP and education, he said, for once, somebody actually knew what they were talking about, and if this chap um, you know, ha has got a book in him, I, I, I really think it would sell, he actually could relate it to the classroom. So I dutifully wrote this man a note and said, um, you know, my husband wants to see you, thought you were terrific, if you... Um, you know, if, if you if you want to discuss writing a book, I'd be very happy to have that uh, discussion with you. And he contacted me and said, "I'm thank you, Bridget. You know, rang me up and said I'm really flattered uh, by your note. And um, actually, I have been published before. Um, yes, and um, let me see. I can't remember who it was published by. I think it was Nelson Thorns. This is a big, big uh, publishing house. He said, "Yeah, and um, actually, I think it, it's actually been reprinted 16 or 17 times." Well, I sort of sat up and said, we, we should meet. You know, this man definitely has a book that's worth publishing. Um, and so we signed him up, and we spent a lot of time on him. But it was, you know, what came back was a fantastic book. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time with him. And he kept saying to me the whole time, you know, I've just never had this attention. I've never, I've never had this. You know, thank you so much. Actually, he wanted illustrations in his book, and he wanted um, very expensive illustra illustrations. We couldn't afford them, um, but he was willing to pay for them, and it was amazing. But so our relationship, I mean, I, I you know, how you can get a publisher, uh, sorry, an author to say, no, fine, that's fine, a few thousand pounds, I'll pay for it. But we managed to somehow. <laughs> so, um, but you know, that book went on to be the bestseller of this company, and it is still the best-selling book. And how we got that right was my husband was the end user, the consumer. You know, he's the exact sort of person that they wanted to buy it. It's going to an education market, so they have budgets and what have you. So we got that right, we got the content right, we got the relationship right, um, and we got the price and the discount right. You know, these sorts of books, you don't give high discounts. So, I mean, that, that I think is a particularly good example of sort of closeness, closeness to authors. Um, so that book's called The Teacher's Toolkit, if anybody wants to go out and buy it. You know, unfortunately, my husband never got a royalty or a finder's fee or anything like that, but, um, but it is a fantastic book. Um, and I think another reason why indie, independent publishers are sort of bucking the trend, you know, they're, they're simply hungrier to survive. You know, they own owner-managed companies. You know, it's their future. It's their houses on the line. It's, you know, they have to pay the salaries at the end of the day. They, they're simply hungrier to survive. And I think that's, would you, would you agree with that, Giles? Do I look hungry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, IPG, as I'm sure if you've been reading your bookseller, you will have seen. We had a huge conference uh, a few weeks ago, about three weeks ago, um, and it, it was a fantastic success. Um, and you know, it was very much this sort of thing. You know, what should independent publishers be doing? How can you be more recession-proof? And we did a sort of um, session on the things that you know you really ought to be doing. 
and these are the sorts of things that came up. So um, the first thing is that you must publish must-have books rather than nice-to-have books. And I think that's really true for, again, a lot of independent publishers. They're publishing in a field where you know, the, they, they know their customers, they're they must-have books rather than sort of frivolous hobby books, it'd be nice-to-have nice to sort of things. Um, cash is king. Really, you know, you have to be on top of your finances and your accounts and to do monthly cash flow forecasts. I mean, at IPG, again, we do monthly cash flow forecasts, um, and that's hugely important. Uh, another thing, you know, to act fast. If, 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 you're, if, if the, you know, you've got problems, do something about it. Don't sit around. And again, small, you know, an independent company, you just, you've got to move fast. You can't afford not to. You need to talk to your bank managers. So the sorts of things that we were saying as well is that, you know, um, they should renegotiate terms with their suppliers, to renegotiate terms with their customers. I mean, again, somebody was giving me an example last week that um, their stand at London, uh, sorry, at the Frankfurt Book Fair, they spend tens of thousands of pounds on their stand. This, this is a, a bigger independent publisher. Uh, and they went back and to their um, stand designers and said, we still want to use you, but we, we don't have the budget that we've been using, you know, that, that we had last year. Um, and they've got the exact same, the exact same um, stand design, twenty thousand pounds cheaper. But you know, for these people, the stand designers, it was like no business or some business, and they'd rather have that. And again, once you've lost that chain, once you've decided to go elsewhere, it's quite hard. You know, you're less inclined to pick up with these people again. So, in a way, you know, if you're smart, you're in a strong negotiating position. Um, one very important thing for any company but in particular in these recession times is not to cut prices not to not to feel desperate to say right you know we'll just sell it we might as well sell it than have it sitting around well actually there is no point selling at, at, at a loss um, in fact it's probably the time to increase your prices um, uh, and obviously not uh, I'm saying to renegotiate with with suppliers and customers not not to give more discount so there are other things like to um, to control your stock, make sure that doesn't uh, get out of hand. Um, and one suggestion that came up at our conference was to outsource. Now again, this is quite interesting because uh, a few people thought that this was not the right way to go down, and somebody else was saying, well, you know, in a recession, cut your cut your overhead. So if you have to let staff go, let staff go. And somebody came up to me after and said. I really, you know, I really resented that because actually, sort of, the typical independent publisher would not, you know, at any cost let their staff go because you're more like a family. It's true, you're smaller, you know, you really are more like a family, um, and that's sort of the outlook of a, a larger company. So, I mean, obviously, it depends on your circumstances, um, but that is one thing that, you know, if you're in recession-proof times, that um, you might, you might need to consider. So. The IPG. So we are, as, as we've already said, you know, we are the trade association for independent publishers. So, what are we doing to support our members? Um, well, we did a we did a membership survey uh, about 18 months ago to say, you know, how are we doing and what do you want us to do and all those sorts of things. Um, I should just say now, it, we really embody what we represent. I have um, two members of staff, one of whom works part time. I'll just tell you all the things that we do, and if you just think that there's 2.5 of us doing all this in a year, you know, we, 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 we're kept out of the mischief, I can say that, tell you that. 
So we did this um, we did this membership survey, and the thing that came back was that really what they value most about us is that we provide a forum for people to get together. Our members they just love to meet, they love to meet up, and it's so important because. I think one distinguishing feature of independent publishers, and I'm sure Giles will back me up here, is the willingness to share information. I've never, I've never seen anything like it. People are extremely generous um, with their information sharing, aren't they, and willing to support each other. Um, and I think that's, you know, a real sign of sort of solidarity. Um, so IPG provides these platforms. So throughout the year, we have num numerous events. Um, the first thing, the, the biggest thing we have is our conference, which um, some of you would have read about. So we have about 200 people who come to that, uh, and it's a weekend. And it, I mean, it really is excellent. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, obviously the content, what's being discussed, networking, meeting people, meeting people you just wouldn't really have the opportunity to meet otherwise. But really, as someone said to me, actually, it's not so important the person on the platform as the person you're sitting beside, you know, because you, you share around and, and, and pick up things and I know from first-hand experience that's true because I used to be when I was publishing director of Crown House Publishing um, I used to be an IPG member and um, I was reasonably young and it was a startup company and I didn't certainly didn't have the answer to everything and I went to an IPG conference and it opened the door to look for me to meet lots of different people for me to go in email them and say mm, how do I do such and such and how do I do this and you know th those people I'm friendly with you know Eight years later, so um, it you know it's been, it is a fantastic I think a real sort of uh, camaraderie. The other thing that we do are book fairs. Now, has anyone been? Did anyone go to London Book Fair last year? Let me see. Yeah. Well, IPG has a huge stand. We have um, it's J205, and uh, we have 70 exhibitors this year, um, of which how-to books are one of our exhibitors. Um, but it's it, the thing again, you know, it's where we really benefit is that we, on their own, people wouldn't have the sort of presence that they get by being with us. The stand location, you know, we've, over the years we've bartered long and hard to get a very good location. And these things actually matter because you're sending out a signal to the rest of the industry, to the rest of the world, and it's, you know, a couple of times a year at book fairs, this is us, come and see us, and this is, you know, this is how we look. It's extremely important. But again, and I say this as somebody who exhibited on the IPG stand eight years ago, you know, I picked up and I made friends with other exhibitors on the stand and, again, went off and did business with them and all sorts of things. So um, having joint, so our big ones are London and Frankfurt and we went to Cairo this year with, in partnership with other trade associations. The next thing we do is speed dating at London Book Fair and this is hugely popular. I've sort of created a monster here, I think, um, in the sense that... Uh, some of our members, they don't get to meet with Amazon and they don't get to meet with Waterstones buyers and all these international buyers. They get email addresses, but they never actually are able to sit down and, and talk to someone. So we started this a few years ago um, because, again, IPG has clout with these buyers. So we say, come and, come and meet our members and, you know, 15-minute meetings. Um, and, I mean, I personally organise something like 200 meetings for our buyers, so you come in and there's great momentum. And I think Giles, you were saying that you guys have benefited. Yeah, about one, every year I meet somebody new that I haven't been able to access without the help of the IPG and speed dating. You, the other great benefit is you get, I think it's quarter of an hour, is it? Yeah, 15 minutes. You only. get 15 minutes only, and it's marvelous how that actually condenses your message into something thoroughly useful. Yes. There's no, there's just a hello and a goodbye, but in between there's one topic that you've had to focus on, which really gets. Get sorted yeah. out. 
Twitter. That's great because it gets oversubscribed. So what happens is this Thursday, I'll be sending out an email to our members saying, right, these are the appointment slots. So we've got actually about 12 Waterstones buyers and I think a lot of Amazon buyers. I don't know if I still will have them. Um, and, um, you know, a whole load of independent retailers and all sorts of things. And um, then people, they email back and say, yes, I'd like to see this person, that person, this person, and that person. And I have to match them all up. And that takes me until late, late at night to matching it all up. Uh, and then they go, but there's terrific momentum. Uh, and the buyers really like it as well because they're small meetings and there's sort of no um, obligation then. But, you know, as, as we were saying, within 15 minutes, you know whether you can do business uh, or not with somebody, but it does result into sort of tangible business results. Uh, so that's great. And just a few other things that we do. So we have the library and information show. We have a joint stand. We do open meetings. So we did one um, at the end of last year on territories. And then because IPG is so diverse, you know, we have these academic and professional buyers, um, publishers and educational ones. We have special interest groups for these. So we have dinners. We've started having academic professional dinners. So, you know, again, it, it just provides a platform for people to come together and, and, and meet. Um, other things we do, yes, we had you know, other seminars. And then what, what other um, uh, organizations in the industry, what they find particularly useful is to put on an open day for our members, because they know that you know, I will market it to our members, and they'll get a lot of people to come along. So Nielsen, for example, every year does an open day for our members. Amazon sometimes um, does open days for our members. Um, so that's the, that's the getting together. The next thing that we do to support our members, and again, in credit crunch times. It's very easy to forget about training, think, ah, oh, you know, we can't afford it. But actually, that's when you really need to have your staff as being um, the most sort of agile and, and, and switched on. So we do training uh, program, um, training courses in partnership with the Publishing Training Centre. Uh, and then probably one of the most things, you know, useful things that we do is um, we do, we give advice, information and support. So um, we have, all our members have a free um, access to a business helpline. So it can be anything. You've got a problem with a uh, member of staff, you've got an employment query on a contract, tax query, you know, you pay, you pay your subs and you get this line, um, you know, support line, which is, you know, we pay several thousand pounds a year so our members can have this access. Um, I do a regular e-bulletin to members. So again, and actually that's one of the most effective ways that members communicate with each other and obviously it's the most effective way I communicate with members so for example somebody will say to me Bridget I have got a query on know, trading in Australia can you just put this query in and often people come up to me and say God, that's amazing after the your bulletin went out and within half an hour I had seven replies and again you know people are willing to take the time to reply and, and, and to help uh, which is great Something that I really like uh, organising is um, special deals for our members because I think that's a tangible result to being an IPG member. You can, you can really see the benefit. So again, I was just talking to Giles before, um, Nielsen Book Scan. This is the, the, I don't know if you know what Nielsen, Nielsen Book Scan is, but it's a, uh, you, you pay for um, data, or sales data, you know, what books are selling, Nielsen Book Track. Um, IPG members get £500 off. Well, you know, you've earned out your subscription if you take that off. Um, so there are thing, things like that we do. Yeah, we won't talk about that yet. 
Uh, something that we launched last year was mentoring. And again, in recession times, it's very important that you give that support so uh, mentees don't have to pay. And again, it, it sort of symbolizes the willingness to share. Um, we have a lot of very experienced publishers within the organization, and, and they're very happy to, to, to share their advice. Now, we have a forum, uh, the IPG forum. And again, if you've got a query, you can go and post it up, and somebody will reply. But if I'm going to be very honest, I have to say it's not been as uh, actively taken up as I would like. And you know, I often say to people, "Why aren't you using the forum more?" They say, "Yeah, but you know, we'd rather use your e-bulletin because that goes in straight to your desktop, comes straight in, and we know that people read it." I mean, my e-bulletin goes out to 890 people. I'm not saying that everybody reads it, but quite a few people read it. Um, whereas the forum, you have to consci consciously go to it. So that's not that. Then I talked about special deals, Nielsen Book Scan courier services, the bookseller, IPG members get a 15% discount. Don't know if Oxford Books are taking it up, but they should do. Um, so another thing we do get, and I think also very important in sort of recession times, is promoting the importance of our members to the industry. Never forget you know, that independent publishers are there. Uh, and the best way that's manifested is through the Independent Publishing Awards. And again, there was a big splash uh, in the bookseller a few weeks ago. I mean, obviously, the bookseller are one of our partners, and we've deliberately done that to ensure that we will get some uh, uh, coverage. Um, but um, but it's a fantastic, really fantastic, because a, a lot of publishers who are very, very good at what they do, and as I say, they're niche publishers, they're very successful, they make a nice profit, but they never get um, recognition for what they do. So this is a, a good way for, to celebrate independent publishing and also to acknowledge the commercial importance of them in the creative industry. So strengthening international links, we, we do that. I'm just I'm speeding up now because time's ticking on. Um, uh, international links, so international book fairs. And again, I bring people, I, I'm, we've got an international seminar at London Book Fair. Uh, through the speed dating, we have international buyers. So we're always doing things. And again, through the e-letter. E Government links and industry links. So we, you know, we sit on all sorts of, um, as Duncan already mentioned, we sit on all sorts of steering groups and committees and things like that, all party parliamentary. Um, uh, committee, which you know, you have to be careful that some of these things are not just talking shops, that they actually do result into something. They result in something, but um, we do uh, sit on lots of things like that. And then we've got a book coming out uh, uh, at the end end of this year. I think we're, we've put the date back a little bit. Uh, Insider's Guide to Independent Publishing. So that's just going to be a guide for people to, um, uh, and it'd be like a benchmark. Are we doing things the right way? Uh, and again how that came about was because somebody, a new member, rang me and he was asking me really basic questions, really basic questions. So I sat on the phone for about 40 minutes uh, with him and then a few days later he sent me an email and said, that was really useful, Bridget, thank you so much, I'm still digesting what you said. Then a week later he sent me an email and said, I've lost all my notes, could you, could you write them up for me? It's like, in a word, no. Um, but it did make me think, well, you know, really, we need, to, we need to have this information written down and we need to do more about it. So that was the catalyst, um, but that should be a very exciting um, publication. And then lastly, really what we do is that we are a voice in the industry for our members. Um, and the last thing I was going to say was, um, you know, I've told you all, all the things that we do. Um, Jonathan uh, came and worked with us at a London Book Fair last year. He was uh, a, sort of a runner. He helped to work the stand, did a fantastic job. Um, 
and um, I've asked them to come and do that again this year. Uh, and as I say, you know, we have 70 publishers on the stand. It's did, did you enjoy it, Jonathan? It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, but it's it's hard work. I mean, it really is hard work. You know, you're there early and you work till late. I mean, we have a drinks party on the Tuesday night, but really, it's ma it's being a runner for all these speed dating meetings. Um, but I, we've got two places, and Jonathan's going to have one. And I thought that if anybody else from Oxford Brooks here in the audience today would like to be the second person and to say, "Oh, Bridget was talking a lot of nonsense," actually, uh, it's not at all like that. Um, you know, the first person who comes up and says uh, they'd like to do it, um, you know. I'd be more than willing to take you on. I think it is, it's a great catalyst and the nice segue into this quite nicely. Jonathan was looking for work experience. How Two Books were exhibiting on the IPG stand last year. They got together. Jonathan does some work for uh, How Two Books um, and it's just a nice way of, of, of linking this all up. So if anyone's interested, if you, um, you know, first person who sort of bags me out there, um, I'd be very happy to have you come and work with us. And I, and I just brought some brochures as well that I'll leave here for anybody to take. All right, thank you very much. Just move over quickly to uh, Giles's uh, case study of thank how you, they're bucking the recession right now. So. Thank you, Bill. It was a match made in heaven, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> Still is. <laughs> Still is, yes. <laughs> Jonathan's still working for us, actually, on an on a item which is a very exciting development we've got, which I'll mention at the end of, our, of my talk. Now, I'm going to bolt through this, so um, stick your hand up if you want to interrupt me. I'm delighted to be interrupted, because you know, you might be getting a bit um, tired now. Um, I'll just say a few things about recession, because, frankly, my main theme is that recession this year, anyway, is really exacerbating stuff that's been developing in the book trade for some time anyway. So the recession is making things worse, but it's not because it's a recession, in my view. It's because it's just making things that were already happening worse. Um, but this recession has all the sort of standard signs of a book trade recession. It's got budget cuts on new books. You walk into Waterstones and they say, sorry, you haven't got any budget left this month. Now, as a publisher, new books are your lifeblood. You've invested in them. If your major customer, Waterston, says there's no budget for your book this August or this June or whatever, then that's a whole wave of your new books which might never get into Waterston's. So turnover apart, that's very serious. That's standard for a recession in publishing. Um, emphasis on stock control. I don't know how many of you have noticed in Waterston's that recently, fairly recently anyway, you go into the shop and on the shelves there are lots of books which are face out. And it gives a very colourful impression. But those same shelves, say a couple of years ago anyway, were full of books spine on. And this is simply a device for cutting down stock on the shelf without the consumer noticing. And of course those stock cuts, less books on the shelf mean less books bought from the publisher. Can't blame Waterstones, this is, this is their way of controlling their cash. But that has a knock-on effect of publishers, clearly, obviously. Instead of buying two or three of your new books, they might buy one, or none at all. Um, another thing which you see in this sort of thing is emphasis on returns. We mentioned that, so I won't really go into that again. Bad debt. Gosh, bad debt is really, really a severe impact on publishers. For those of you who are more accounting-minded, um, bad debt comes when somebody you've invoiced fails to pay. Now, if you invoice somebody, say, £50,000, and they fail to pay you, that's £50,000 knocked to your bottom line. It's not simply a reversal of sales. You've already sold the books to those person. They won't come back. So the whole £50,000 is a profit charge. 
And if there's anything, I would say, the biggest danger to small publishers in a recession, small publishers, all right, is bad debt. Now, recently, Bridget mentioned Bertram's. We had a debt with Bertram's, very substantial for us, because Bertram's one of the two countries' leading wholesalers, well, one of the two only wholesalers now, um, and it was a significant debt, and for three or four months, we had to provide for that debt as a bad debt in our accounts, because they ran out of time to pay, they didn't pay, months went by, they still didn't pay, and um, this was quite a shaker. I mean, for a small publisher, this is serious stuff. One of your wholesalers going bad on a debt is, is, a, is potentially a, a bankrupting issue. Luckily, Bertrams have been bought by Smith's Wholesale Group, and Smith's Wholesale <laughs> Group, luckily again, have guaranteed to repay all the frozen debt that was unpaid at the start. Huge size of relief all round amongst small publishers. Massive relief. Really, a, 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 some, for some publishers, I can guarantee that would have been a life or death issue. So bad debt in a recession is something to really very, very be very, very careful of indeed. And linked to that is this business of credit insurance, which I think is a symptom of recession, which we didn't have before. Due to my great age, I've been through two recessions previously. This one's different in that main respect. Credit insurance didn't used to exist. And what I think is happening this time is that as companies, as insurance companies withdraw their credit insurance from um, traders, retailers, then they, in one stroke, they worsen the situation of that retailer. You imagine if you're a retailer and you're, and you're doing um, 100,000 a month in sales. Suddenly, your credit insurance is withdrawn from two months to nothing. So instead of paying for those for your stock every month, two months in in uh, in arrears, you're paying. You're being asked to pay on supply. As a company, therefore, turning over, I said 100,000, didn't I? Turning over 1.2 million a year, you suddenly have to find 200,000 pounds of cash flow in order to keep trading. 200,000 quid. Now, on a 1.2 million profit, that's a lot more than your net profit per year. So it's a very serious issue indeed when a retailer is deprived of credit insurance. It's also a serious issue for publishers, but I'll come on to that in a second. Um, if, if, a, if a retailer is deprived of credit insurance, then uh, a publisher has to make a, uh, well, has to do something he hasn't, he's not used to doing nowadays, which is he has to make a judgment about the creditworthiness of that publisher, of that, of that retailer. Now, the fact that the credit insurance has been withdrawn means, of course, that there's something going wrong, not wrong, but there's something happening at the retailer that could prejudice their credit worthiness. And yet, a publisher suddenly has to make that judgment, and he's denied, has been denied, any knowledge of the customer. Before credit insurance came in, when I first started in publishing, you traded with a customer and you knew them. You got to know when they would or wouldn't pay. You knew that if they said something like, give me another 15 days this month and it'll be okay, you, you learned to trust them. Now, suddenly, credit insurance is withdrawn, you're thrown back on your customer, you have no idea what their trading history is. You have no feel for them at all. And that, I think, is a, a unique thing, a first-time thing, anyway, this recession. And my own view is that's helping the recession spiral down very viciously and very quickly. And the other characteristic of, of this recession, which is different, I think, from normal ones, is banking. Because, of course, if, you, if you're a retailer, for instance, 
and you have to find that £200,000 of extra credit because you've had your credit insurance withdrawn, then who do you turn to? You turn to your bank. Not this time, chum. We all know what banking's doing at the moment. They're, they're, they're not lending, basically. So you're very lucky indeed if you can keep your same overdraft facilities, which may have been seasonal, seasonal requirements only in the last year or two, but suddenly have become life-or-death requirements now. And you might need twice what you've been borrowing from the bank before, and lo and behold, you get half or none at all, nothing at all. So the combination of credit problems and lack of borrowing makes this recession particularly nasty. And I believe we have not seen the worst of it yet. And the other reason I think we haven't seen the worst of it yet, apart from the two issues I've just mentioned, is redundancies. Um, a sign of recession is you go into a retailer and they start talking about footfall. Footfall's dropping in the shops, right? And uh, if that happens, you know that they're, they're suffering a bit. I've forgotten the point I was going to make in relation to that now, but can anyone, can anyone remind me? Redundancies. Yes, redundancies. Now, footfall starts falling in shops. Shops start making redundancies. And uh, I, it's my belief that this recession has only just seen the start of redundancies. I haven't actually seen many in bookshops, because I think bookshops are relatively, either relatively slow into this recession, or maybe they'll escape relatively unscathed. Not totally, as I've already described, but relatively in terms of footfall anyway. Footfall means buying customers coming into the shop. Now, these are dropping, and um, redundancies are beginning in the retail trade as a whole. If you get massive redundancies in the retail trade as a whole, and I think there were nearly 200,000 in February, not in retail, but over the whole country, then, of course, you get less consumption of books as well as everything else. And, of course, we haven't seen the major wave of redundancies in this recession yet. It, they're just beginning. So I think things will get tougher. Um, now, I said earlier, recession is exacerbating some de developments and trends in the book trade as a whole. What are they? Well, your students of publishing, you'll all have heard of the net book agreement. Yep, 19... 97, I think it was abolished in this country for books, earlier than that for all other products, but 1997 for books. And um, basically we've been seeing the results of that in book retailing ever since, as I'm sure your lecturers may have told you or discussed with you. And uh, if you look at uh, what those results are, Bridget mentioned the main one, consolidation. Uh, I call it agglomeration. That's when... Um, <coughs> retail chains buy up smaller retail chains and, and come together. And it's a very, there's a very simple way of illustrating that for us as how-to books. And that is that three years ago, our list of significant customers, that's customers who traded over £500 a year with us, you'd think that wouldn't be all that significant, but you know, they all pile up. We had, a, we had a, literally a printout report of customers who did more than £500 a year with us. And... The size of that report, in the, just in physical terms, has halved over the last three years because of, mainly because of agglomeration. Now, this didn't include any independent booksellers. We didn't have them on that report, so I'm not counting independent booksellers. These are retail chains, large and small. They've just vanished. They've been bought up or they've gone out of business or whatever. So the whole face of book retailing, when you look at it from a trade publisher's point of view, has changed markedly. And um, part of the result of that is that these booksellers have got bigger. As they agglomerated, that's the word, they got bigger. And if they got bigger, and if there are less of them, 
then they have more power. And ever since the net book agreement went, there's been a fundamental shift of power from book retailers, sorry, from book publishers to book retailers. We used to be in charge 10 or so years ago. Now the book retailers are in charge. And when they're in charge, the first thing they do is they reach for their discount markers. And discounts um, are a very sore point for small publishers because we are independent small publishers. We don't have much muscle when it comes to negotiating discounts. The big boys do. The five major publishing groups have some strength. We don't, effectively, with, with retailers. And so we've seen our margins eaten away over the last 10 years by negotiated discounts, which are always upwards. And that's a major problem. So that most independent small publishers, generally speaking, are less well-funded in terms of working capital, the whole working capital cycle, than they used to be, and therefore less resilient. And again, that spells bad news in, in, in recessions. Um, the other, I think, dominant factor that's come up as a result of the abolition of the netbook agreement is the increased awareness of value by book consumers. So people who buy books and go into bookshops now are now very used to three-for-two offers or promotional offers of one sort or another, but it's mainly three-for-two, isn't it? And I don't know if you're the same as me, but I hardly ever get past the three-for-two table in a bookshop now because I see one book on the table I like I kind of see another one I half like, and I think, oh, I must make up the third. I'm sure, I'm sure we're all the same. Now, our books, as a smaller independent publisher, they're all at the back of the shop. They're all on the shelves, and they're all spine out. So nobody's seeing them anymore, you could say. That's a big problem for independent publishers. Less of a problem for the big um, publishers, because they can afford to pay the sometimes very large sums of marketing cost that's a non-returnable down payment that you pay to the retailer to get your books on three for two promotion as well as increased discount as well as shortened return terms so to actually get onto a promotional table if the bookseller thinks your book is worthy of it requires um, a reduction in margin and a shortening of cash cycle Again, small publishers, not very well placed to resist this or to, to manage this. Um, there's one other rather, I think, rather unusual, well, one that I'm not sure people are generally aware of anyway, result of the development in, in the last 10 years in the book trade. And that is one that's been particularly affected, I think, by um, larger publishers' consolidation and, and bookseller consolidation. And that is that the remainder market as such has effectively vanished. To all intents and purposes, it's vanished. Um, partly because the difference between remainder prices and offer prices in bookshops has, be, has been reduced, and partly because um, remainder, well, the remainder market has become a market that kicks you in the face. I'll explain. Amazon have a, a, a very substantial division called Marketplace, Amazon Marketplace. If you remainder a book now, that book will come back on Amazon Marketplace and bite you in the bum, especially if it's a, book, if it, if it's a current edition that you have. Because often you remainder a, a book, make a new edition, launch it on the book trade, and it used to work very well. Now if you make a, a new edition of something, you'll find the old edition selling on Amazon Marketplace and, un, and undercutting your, your new edition. And since 
concentrating on new editions is one of the most important things a, a recession-struck publisher can do, this is a problem. And we, as a publisher, decided about 12 months ago not to remainder our books anymore. What's the problem, you might say? Well, the problem is every publisher has overstocks. If you can't remain your overstocks, then that's another cash source that you're deprived of. I hope everyone understands that, because it's quite important. So just at the moment when we need it most, we can't have our remainder market back, because it's turned into a second-hand book market. Not just Amazon either, other outlets as well. Now, nothing I've said, I hope, makes you think I'm prejudiced against retailers, and particularly online retailers because this is the name of the game. They are simply surviving by commercial rules. And if any independent small publisher wants to be a publisher and stay independent, then um, uh, they have to survive by the same rules. So how do you adapt to all these problems? And how particularly does, how, has How To Books adapted to these problems? And Jonathan, I won't take more than 10 yep. minutes, if that's all right. Um, uh, Bridget mentioned internet booksellers. They are so important for the smaller publishers simply because they level the playing field for publishers. Um, I'll come on to that, actually, Jonathan. I'll give you a sign. <laughs> um, small, small books, uh, sorry, um, in the internet booksellers, they level the playing field for, for publishers. Um, it's, a, it's a democratic environment. You don't have three for two tables on Amazon. You have offers on Amazon where you don't have to pay a marketing charge up front you simply have to give a slightly bigger discount, and then you get advantage of their offers. So, whoopee, independent smaller publishers, they can, they can actually enjoy being on offer, which is denied us really, with, generally denied us with a larger retailer. So that's good news. Um, they're also very flexible, uh, internet, internet booksellers. Uh, it's very difficult to get to see Amazon, but that doesn't mean it's difficult to access them. You can, generally speaking, have a good email conversation with Amazon that will, generally speaking, get you somewhere. And uh, Internet booksellers offer other advantages. That it's, it's much more visible. You can see what's happening to your books. I mean, our authors, most of them drive themselves insane by watching their placing on Amazon every day. You know the bestseller listing on Amazon? They drive themselves mad, and so do we. One of my colleagues at the back is smiling because we all drive ourselves mad looking at these um, Amazon placings. But at least it, you know, it shows how you're doing. And you get, as you get experienced on it, you can actually tell almost, certainly if you get into the top 20, which we have been very privileged to do recently, um, you can actually tell how many books you're selling a day. At one point we were selling just under 600 books a day off Amazon <coughs> because we were number two in, in the number two slot. And so that accessibility, that visibility, again, is, is unique for smaller publishers um, to internet booksellers. Um, now, the other st stuff I'm going to mention, apart from one, is all standard. In a recession, as a, as a small publisher, by which, Bridget, I'm saying, if you're slightly constrained for working capital, okay, that's my definition, <laughs> um, then the first thing you do is you cut back on your new books, because in recession, booksellers get awfully conservative. They start saying, well, hang on a minute, anything's new is a risk, isn't it? Yes? Well, Mr. Bookseller, you, are, you do have a right of return. Yeah, I know, but it's still a risk because we have to hold the thing for um, nine months. So they start cutting back on new books, and the, the trick is to make everyone count, and frankly, I'm afraid, to reduce your program. We have cut about 
25% out of our new book program this year, and another 5 or 10% may have to go. Not cut, but pushed it into next year. And instead, we concentrate on bringing new editions out of books that have sold before, because retailers tend to look at BookTrack when you're subscribing to them, uh, BookScan, BookTrack, and they, um, they say, oh, that one sold so many. Okay, I'll take one or two of those. So you're onto a safer bet with new editions than you are with new books. Sadly, but it's true. You reduce print runs. Uh, you can take 25% off your print run without hugely damaging your profit, but greatly increasing your cash flow. And perhaps just as important, reducing your depreciation charges every year. We've really suffered from depreciation charges in the last 12 months. It's knocking hell out of our profit and loss account. Now, every depreciation charge you take, that's books you've had to write off because you haven't sold them, represents a cash outlay that you made, in our case, 18 months ago, that now denies you that cash. So get real, start cutting your print runs, reducing your cash outlay now before it's too late. And uh, if it works, you can always do another printing of a, of a larger quantity. Um, and uh, cash outlay, the, most in, the, mo the thing you can most immediately manage, and by immediately, you've really got to think quickly in a recession because things can unwind awfully quickly. You can get into a real mess very, very soon. Within a couple of months, you can go from, I've got lots of money in the bank, to help. Where did my overdraft go? It can happen that fast if you, if you print too much stock and fail to sell it. That's, that's the worst thing you can do. And... Um, uh, you've really got to watch out for what you're investing in stock. And I'll just, before I take your question, I'll just say one thing about that in particular. A golden rule in, in a recession is try not to invest more in production than you're actually getting, or you're actually seeing as a cost of sales sum in your profit and loss account for that month. So in other words, your, your cost of sales for one month, let's say April, should not exceed, sorry, should not be less than Right, should not be less than your production investment that you're making in that same month. Because it stands to reason. Your cost of sales is a measure of how much of your production units are moving out that month. If you're putting, so that much, that much cost of production is moving out of your warehouse, don't put more than that cost back into your warehouse. And if you follow that golden rule, then you should manage your cash on a level basis. And that is so important because that's the way most publishers get into trouble producing too many books they can't sell. Um, there's a few other things I'll say, but I'm short of time. Now, what I've mentioned so far as, cu as cures for recession are, are really standard stuff, um, although lots of publishers don't follow it and rue the day. But um, what How to Books is doing, and, this, and the point I want to make again is this is not in reaction to recession. This is in reaction to our reading three or four years ago that these trends and changes in the bookseller, which were difficult for independent small publishers, were actually going to increase and not get better for us. Now, what recession did is it brought along, an ex I think, we think, it's brought along an acceleration of those factors, the ones I mentioned, like consolidation, etc. And so what we've been looking for is nothing short of a new publishing model for non-fiction publishers. And um, we think we've come up with an answer which... Well, it's certainly, we're certainly the only people who are thinking of it. Now, that's either because we're totally and utterly wrong, which is possible, or because actually um, there's a bit of a revolution here and somebody has to start it. So see what you think. 
we are, um, about three years ago, we set up a very small site which put bits of our books up and allowed customers to have free access to those, to those books. Free access, okay? What we found, we surrounded, that, but we surrounded that material with advertising. Not advertising for our books, but advertising for other companies and other products. And we found that we made money out of that site in two different ways. This was a trial we did. The first way was we sold more books because people came onto the site, looked at the material, said, I like that. Where can I? Oh, I can buy it there. Bought the buy, buy this book button and went off and bought the book. And the second thing that happened, which took us, not by surprise, but the extent of it took us by surprise, the value of it, was that they clicked on the ads surrounding the text and we made money out of that. That's, that's not publishing, you might say. It's advertising. Dead right. It is. That's advertising. But it's allied to publishing. Because what we did is we put the content, we put content on the website, on the internet, that people wanted to read. Okay? We put malleable content that Google, most importantly, wanted its searchers to find. Okay? So if you put in, Chris, bookkeeping into a search string on Google, you'll find that we're listed by Google as the fourth, fourth most world's authority on bookkeeping. I kid you not. You try it when you go back. Put bookkeeping in and you'll, you'll find us there. And that's our book, full content of our book. People go onto the site, they look at the book, they might buy a copy, they might click on the ad and go off. Either way, we win. That sounds very simple. I'm, I'm tempted to say genius is simple. <laughs> but I won't, because the genius who kicked this all, all off is at the back there, who's, who's working for us as our, as our director of marketing. But um, the, the point I'm making rather in rather a short period of time is that our site called www.howto.co.uk, which you see um, there, which starts off with that significant headline, Read Free Online Books, is, as far as we know, the first, certainly of a trade publisher, to do this, and the first site which actually um, va uh, places a value, a business value, on advertising. But I'm not going to emphasize the advertising too much, because this is a publishing model. What this allows us to do, which is truly exciting, is to meet our end user, our consumer. Now, very few trade publishers do that. Some academic publishers do, and some other specialist publishers do. But you tell me a trade publisher that actually talks to its end users. They don't. They all do it through the bookshop. Mr. Red T-shirt. They're doing it through the bookshop. It's not a satisfactory conversation. You can't, you know, you can't talk to your, publisher, to your consumer about a book unless you stand in the shop and wait for him to pick it out. I've done that, but I didn't talk to the, I didn't talk to them. I just wanted to see where they, how they read the blurbs. But that's the only way of doing it. And that, of course, is totally impractical for any meaningful statistic. Here, through, um, through blogs, the authors can blog on the book on, on the site, um, on their own book, that is, and through forums, and just through sheer visibility of what they're doing when they get onto the site with the material we're showing them, we can actually have a conversation with our consumers, which goes right back in and informs our publishing as well as making us money because we're selling more books, as well as making us money because we're selling some advertising. So we think this is a really exciting, totally new, innovatory way of making a, making a living, if you like, out of non-fiction publishing. And Jonathan was the first of our internees, because we take an internee every year, to, um, to work on this with us. And uh, some of the credit can go to Jonathan for making it happen. The main credit goes to Chris McVeigh at the back for 
our director of marketing, for recognizing the idea, building the expertise through trial and error. I spent the money on the error. <laughs> uh, and bringing it to fruition. And actually, in a way, this is a kind of launch for us because um, we, we had some difficulties last year putting the site up. Had to rework it and uh, started again on Christmas Eve. And this, is now, this site is now fresh, new, pointing in all the right directions. And we hope to encourage, in future, we hope to encourage other publishers to come onto the site and join us. Thank you.